Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking in particular at verses 8 through 11, but in order to get the feel for this concluding part of the section, I'll start up reading at verse 3. This is God's word for us. In the book of Second Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is it that so few Christians, it seems, are most passionate about the very thing that the apostles encourage the most? It's not hard to find Christians, especially younger Christians, who are very eager to change the world. It's not hard to find Christians be of a little older ilk, who are very eager to sort of create an ideal family life. How do we get these pieces together, have the right marriage and the right kids and the right schooling? How do we get this right? It's not hard to find Christians of all ages who are very eager to make a difference in the culture. In all of those things are good and have their place. But it's also true that the New Testament spends relatively little time addressing any of those areas. Doesn't do a lot to give us a a blueprint how to change the world. A little bit more on our families. You know, implications about how we live out our Christian life in, in the culture and salt and light. But the New Testament spends a lot of time exhorting the believer to personal holiness. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. 
It's a sermon on the Mount. It's, it's about what life should be like, what this kingdom life should be like in the church as we live out this vision for God's people and we forgive and we turn the other cheek and our word is our bond. Think of Paul's lists of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what Paul is jealous to see wrought in his spiritual children. Think of the language of putting on and putting off, of shedding these old ways of being, put on, putting on new ways of thinking and being. And perhaps it's, it's unfair to sort of pit the, the two against each other, changing the world and changing ourselves. But you have to conclude from the New Testament that the writers are much more concerned that you and I are changed. And perhaps that will lead in God's kindness that different parts of our society and world may spill over and be changed. <laughs> But what you have some control over, humanly speaking, is your own life. That's what they're concerned about. Are you being changed? Think of all the efforts that we put into various aspects of our lives. And we need to put effort. I usually Monday, uh, my day off, one of the things I do just to make it real special is to do bills and uh, enter receipts into Quicken and try to write out any checks that we need to. Just realize we left our church check at home. So if your pastor doesn't get paid, I'll blame myself. Uh, you have to work on those things. You have to work on schooling. Whatever way you choose to do it, you, you work on your house. We're always dreaming up things for our house, how to make it a little better, how to fix things up. How to, you know, some of you work very hard at athletics. We work hard at our career and all of those things we should. But by comparison, is there a comparable earnestness to excel in godliness? You may have career goals where you want to be in five years. You may have certain things you want to see your family look like, achieve. Do you have those same sorts of goals for your personal holiness? We've been looking at this little mini sermon that begins Second Peter chapter 1. In verses 3 and 4, we looked at the power for godliness, that the source of this power is Christ. And it comes to us flowing through like a river and the two banks are the knowledge of God and then his very precious promises. And then the river of this power overflows that we might participate in the divine nature and escape corruption in the world. That's the power. Then verses five through seven, we saw the pattern for godliness. This pattern requires effort. This pattern is rooted in faith and culminates in love. And this pattern is a process. And now we come to the third point. Like a good preacher, Peter has three points to the premise for godliness. So the power, the pattern, and now the premise for godliness. Or you could think of it as three questions. How, what, and why? How we get godly, power from Christ, what it looks like, that's the pattern. And now why? Why do we make an effort to be godly? And this question is... Huge. 
If you say, well, we make an effort to be godly so that I might be accepted before God, you've just subverted the gospel. If you say, I work to be godly so that I might impress people in my church, well, then you don't understand the gospel. So why? Why? What is the premise? Three points. Godliness renders you an effective Christian. Number two, godliness makes your election sure. And number three, godliness provides an entrance into the eternal kingdom. So effective election entrance. Those are the three E's for the premise for godliness. Number one, godliness renders you an effective Christian. Verse eight. Why is holiness important? Why does it matter? Verse eight gives us an answer with a simple if then statement. If these qualities are yours and are increasing. It's two things here. You you have these qualities. You have faith, virtue, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly kindness, knowledge, love. You have those things. And they're increasing. Increasing. Because, you know, if we just said you have them, then we'd say, well, I don't know. Do I really have them? Or I don't have them as much as I'd like to. So you don't have to have them in perfection, but they are increasing. So the point is the trajectory. It's not your placement or your position so much as your trajectory. Are you growing? Are you in this process of getting more and more like Christ. And if you understand that godliness is a process and that the point is that you are increasing, this will help guard you against a couple dangers. One of the dangers is perfectionism. I'm going to read a few paragraphs here from D.A. Carson. You can find this online. There's, a, there's an online journal for pastors and theological students, but you all could read it and benefit from it. It's called Themelios, T-H-E-M-E-L-I-O-S. I know it doesn't have a real name that sort of makes you think, yeah, I could get that, but that's the name, Themelios. You Google it, you'll find it in this latest uh, issue. Carson has an, an essay on perfectionism, and he actually starts by talking about strands of Wesleyan perfectionism. And if you were here a few weeks ago, Keswick theology. But then he says this. Now, let me read several paragraphs because I think this is helpful. Yet I suspect there is another species of theological perfectionism, though it is never so labeled, that owes no connection to Keswick or Wesley. Perhaps I can approach it tangentially. More than 10 years ago, a gifted pastor I know told me that at the age of 50, he was contemplating leaving pastoral ministry. Perhaps he would serve as an administrator in some sort of Christian agency. When I probed, I discovered that his reasoning had little to do with typical burnout, still less with any secret sins, and certainly not with a disillusionment toward the gospel or with the primacy of the local church. His problem, rather was that he had set extraordinarily high standards for himself in his sermons. Each of his sermons was a hermeneutical and homiletical gem. Anyone who knows anything about preaching could imagine how much time this pastor devoted to sermon preparation. Yet as his ministry increased, as legitimate demands on his time multiplied, 
he found himself frustrated because he could not maintain the standards he had set for himself. I told him that most of us would rather he continue for 20 more years at 80% of his capacity rather than for six more months at 100% of his capacity. Now, one might dismiss this pastor's self-perceived problem as idolatry. His ego was bound up with his work and the self had crept into his assessments. But let us, for charity's sake, suppose in his own mind he was trying to offer up his very best to the master. Certainly, he had a very high sense of what preaching should be and felt it dishonoring to Christ to offer shoddy work. Now, says Carson, transfer this burden of the pastor to a more generalized case. Occasionally, one finds Christians, pastors and students among them, who are afflicted with a similar species of discouragement. They are genuinely Christ-centered. They have a great grasp of the gospel. They delight to share it. They are disciplined in prayer and service. On excellent theological grounds, they know that perfection awaits final glorification. But on equally excellent theological grounds, they know that every single sin to which a Christian falls prey is without excuse. Precisely because their consciences are sensitive, they're often ashamed by their own failures. The secret resentment that slips in. The unguarded word, the wandering eye, the pride of life, the self-focus. To other believers who watch them, they are among the most intense, disciplined, and holy believers we know. But to themselves, they feel like failures, inconsistent followers, mere Peters who regularly betray their master. And Carson goes on to say that though they have very good theology and they know that they will not yet fully be glorified until the end, yet because they have rightly so a sense that every sin is unexcusable, they become unexcusable to themselves. To finish the quote, doctrinally, therefore, these believers know that perfection still lies on the horizon, but yet they sink into bleak despair as they confront their own sins. And it's not that they are the worst Christians. Far from it. They are among the finest Christians I know. Those who criticize them have rarely thought as long and as hard about sin and how to overcome it as these brothers and sisters have. They remain so uncomfortable with their wrestlings because they know they ought to be better. And this unhappiness sometimes descends into despair is the fruit of frustration that perfection is not achievable. Yet it springs not from a generalized aspirations for utopia, but from a biblical declaration of the power of the gospel placed alongside our own shortcomings. It springs from the conviction that granted the power of the gospel, perfection ought to be a lot more attainable than it is. So you take the first verses here. We have everything we need for life and godliness. And if you mix that with a sensitive conscience someone who truly knows the Lord and is eager to serve him. And you put that together and you get a strand of perfectionism that can easily descend into despair. Why aren't I better? It resonates with me. Uh, I'm not this pastor here. He was 50 and hopefully I won't be that pastor. But I think many of us can resonate with this feeling Because we do 
feel grief over our sin. And we do want the power of the gospel evident in our lives. And we're going to talk about that. That a strand of perfectionism slips into our lives and we become hopeless. Why, why am I like this? Why, why am I so frustrating to myself? And you know what? What is perhaps even worse? You impute that strand of perfectionism to others. You cannot allow. Why, why can't they get their theology right right now? Why are they like that? Why do they still fail? And our hearts are so twisted that the very people that you think right now, well, he or she really ought to hear that because I think that they do have this sort of just, you're doing it right now. We're not perfect. So to understand that godliness must be increasing, not arrived at, but increasing, guards us against perfectionism. It also, on the other hand, should guard against stagnation. If you have no wrestling, if you never have any dissatisfaction, you're either in heaven or I'm not sure what's going on in your life spiritually. There ought to be these wrestlings, you know, responding to similar situations in this year versus this year. And here you you responded a little wiser, a little more charitably than you did here. We don't want to be stagnant as Christians. Now, how do you see this? Because it's so, it's so often hard to see in yourself. You're often the worst measure of your own spiritual growth. One of the things that you can do is not only ask your friends, but watch your friends. And I say watch your friends because usually, you know, sort of the people we hang with, we, we generally tend to be sort of the same yeah, roughly spiritual place. And we, we tend to reflect each other and impact each other. And you're sort of all shaping and pushing and pulling and doing together. And so if, if you, you know, wake up one day and say, man, my, my friends are a bunch of bozos. It feels like my, they've been stuck in the same spiritual rut. I haven't seen any growth in them for years. Yeah, to scratch your head and I'll wait, but I'm still friends with them and we seem to be on the same page so have i grown is your little cohort of friends or small group or family are you are your boats rising at the same time or is there a stagnation peter says if if you have these and they're increasing then here's the promise they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our lord jesus christ that's the goal Effective and fruitful knowledge. Talked about this at the very beginning of this series. That we not pit sort of knowledge against godliness, but that we understand knowledge so that there is growth growth in godliness. So knowing things is not the problem. Okay, I know knowledge puffs up, that's a possibility. But just knowing things is not the problem. Peter says it's the knowledge of Christ that is the good soil from which this godliness grows. But the knowledge must be fruitful. You've all known people like this or you've felt this in your own life. 
You know, you sense that there are people who just, man, they really know their Bibles and they're, they're very smart and they seem to just really enjoy the theology stuff. And yet you feel like they're not the best people to be around. And they're just, I don't know, what, what is it? They're, they turn you off and don't seem to be mature in some ways. We, we all are like that at times. But if you think that, what, what you're tempted to do is say, man, it's, knowledge is the problem. And you want to you want to get to godliness and skirt around knowledge. Well, that's not the way to do it. The problem, if you're sizing up the situation correctly, and sometimes we're not, is that the knowledge has not been effective. It has not been fruitful. It hasn't led to this godly character. So you don't cut out the knowledge. That's the soil. You don't remove the plant from the pot. You, You need to water it. So it would grow. If you have these qualities, you will not be ineffective or unfruitful. That is, you won't be useless. On the flip side, if you don't have these qualities and they aren't increasing, then you are useless. You are an ugly, barren tree. You're a tree in the middle of December instead of a tree in the middle of June. Just a spindly thing. And man, that doesn't quite look right. There's nothing on it. There's no fruit. We all know that we can be smart or we can be good teachers or we can be orthodox or we can have a zeal to confront injustice or a passion to see people come to know Christ. But without godliness, all of that is worthless. I would gladly take a church filled with people possessing lots of fruit over people who have lots of gifts. People with many gifts and few fruits are very hard to work with often. They're proud and they want to be in turn. They think they know best. People who have a lot of fruit of the spirit and may not have very many gifts. Oh, you can put them to service anywhere. You will be effective if you have these qualities and they are increasing. Uh, I have a talk that I've given a, a couple of different places called, uh, and, I, and I blogged about it last year. It's called Reaching the Next Generation. It's harder and easier than you think. And this, this was born out of uh, so many people who would ask me, you know, hey, you're across the street from university and there's college students. And what do you do? What's the secret? You know, is it, is it a double bass guitar or what is it? <laughs> and uh, I, I got tired of saying, well, nothing. I don't know. <laughs> Talk to Ben and Pat. They have the double bass guitar. I don't know. So better than nothing, I thought of these five statements to reach the next generation. Really, it's to reach anyone. Grab them with passion. Win them with love. Hold them with holiness. Challenge them with truth. And amaze them with God. That's a sermon maybe for another time. But I I just pick out of there the third item. Hold them with holiness. People will notice if you are different. And not, you know, kind of easy sort of different because you have a, a soul patch or something. But, you know, a real difference of character. Here's what Charles Ryle says. Or not Charles Ryle, J.C. Ryle. 
confusing him with Charles Ryrie. Very different. J.C. Ryle says, I believe there is far more harm done by unholy and inconsistent Christians than we are all aware of. Such men are among Satan's best allies. They pull down by their lives what ministers build up with their lips. They cause the chariot wheels of the gospel to drive heavily. They supply the children of this world with a never-ending excuse for remaining as they are. I, I, just, I just hope that none of us are causing the chariot wheels of the gospel to drive heavily. What is one of the first things people say when you try to share the gospel and they're not interested? Church is filled with what? Oh, they, they always tell me the church is filled with wonderful people. No, yes, hypocrites. That's what they always say. Now, you're tempted to say, well, you'll fit right in. Or you're tempted to, to you know, talk about all of the wonderful things at your church. But, hey, it's true. You can always find cases to prove that point. Don't be one of those cases. And when you are and you show, well, I sin just like the world. Okay, but you repent like a Christian. We're all going to have times where we sin like the world. But you repent like a Christian. If you live this double life, oh, you are Satan's best ally. He loves you. He said, multiply your ranks. Oh, he loves hypocritical, duplicitous Christians. He wants a whole army of them. But if you are marked with holiness, you will be effective. You know, uh, youth ministry, they've done studies that what makes the, the biggest difference in a young person's life is not the number of lock-ins they were at or whether they were in the worship band, youth praise team, or whether they went on a retreat or a mission trip every summer. As important as those things are, the single most important variable is whether or not they had a relationship with a mature Christian adult. Mom, dad, mentor, pastor, someone who would show them holiness. Look, if you want to always, always be relevant... Be godly. Holiness covers over a multitude of cultural ignorance. You don't have to know any movies or know any bands or know anything about sports. You don't have to tweet or know what Twitter is. If you're holy and you love people, they'll see something different. You don't have to be with it. You just have to show that you've been with him. And you'll be effective in ministry. That's, that's the secret. Be like Christ. Second, so godliness makes us effective. Now, more quickly on these last two points, godliness makes your election sure. Look at verses 9 and 10. These are tricky verses. Uh, so we're going to try to untangle them. They raise a lot of questions. Is Peter saying that we have to work somehow to make ourselves elect? Is he saying that we can be carnal Christians? Is he saying that true Christians can actually fall away? Uh, let me try to untangle this by suggesting there are three different kinds of people reflected in these two verses. First... 
I think in verse nine is reference to someone. And I know um, you may not like this term, but to someone who is backsliding. By that, I just mean someone who has a profession of faith and they're they're not walking in it right now. The Christian life is like this. We take two steps forward. We take one step back. This is someone who's taken a step back. It says in verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. So you're, you're so nearsighted. Your, your sight is so bad, you're, you're blind. You're, you're squinting your eyes shut. And in particular, what this person can't see is his past. Now, some of you say, well, I don't want to see my past. That's where I sinned. No, not, not in that respect. He can't see his past where he was saved, where he was cleansed. And perhaps there may be even a reference to to baptism. Whether you're baptized as an adult at the the time where you experience this, or you're baptized as an infant, and later you came to realize the significance of of that baptism, you, you look back in the past at this cleansing. Cleanse from your former sins. So when you are not growing in godliness, you're like someone who has forgotten that you've been forgiven a debt. You got all you got on a gambling mess and you went down to firekeepers, that gaudy monstrosity and blew all your money, got in the hole and somebody forgave all your debt. Whew, close call. Almost lost everything. And then what do you do? You're back there again. You say, no, no, no. Don't, don't you remember what, what just happened? You, you've had a debt canceled. Why would you go back there? Or, use a different analogy, dirt. Why go back into the mud after you've been made clean? Calvin says, for the blood of Christ has not become a washing bath to us that it may be fouled by our filth. So this, this backsliding person, he's, he's forgotten his past, and not in an innocent way, he, he's willfully chosen to forget. He's closed his eyes that he may not remember. That's why it's so serious when as Christians we willfully go out and choose to sin. It's not just, well, I've decided to do something bad. You are trampling upon the blood of Christ, which cleansed you. And you said, I don't care about that. I go out and do my own thing. I don't care about the blood of Christ. That's what you do when you go out and decide to live however you want to live after coming to Christ. You forgot that you've been cleansed. Oh, parents, grandparents, you all have had this experience. You have bath time for the kids. And when you get bath time, you're getting close to that sweetest time of the day, bedtime. It's great. From about uh, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock on Sunday night, it's like the worst hour of the whole week. You know, you get home, church, but kids are wiped out and get the bath and get them ready to bed. You, you want them in bed. So your bath, they're clean, smell good, they're in their jammies, brush their teeth. And then what do they do? Too often. Trapes around outside. Walking around in the garage on the oil stains, eating cookies. No, you brushed your teeth! 
I don't ever want to brush your teeth again. <laughs> You're clean. And you just go. And don't, don't you remember? Oh, what? Don't you remember you just had a bath and now you're running around outside and getting dirty again? Kids, think. That's what God wants to say to us sometimes. Come on, think. You've been made clean. Why do you want to go live like this? So this is this backslider. A second person, I think I see here, is an apostate. You see at the end of verse 10, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall Now, what does it mean to fall? I don't think it means you will never fall, meaning you will never sin. It means you will never fall away completely from the Christian faith. Because the opposite is given in verse 11, entrance into the eternal kingdom. Entrance into the eternal kingdom is the opposite of this fall. This fall means you have apostatized. Now, yes, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly justified cannot be unjust. Justified. Period. Yet we must be fair to what we read in the pages of Scripture. And what we see are numerous examples of people somehow within the covenant community who make some signs of allegiance to Christ and in the end they prove not to be genuine. That's why you have warnings. The warnings... This is one of the perennial questions. What do you do if you believe in perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints, and yet you have these sort of warnings in the Bible? Well, can you you really be elect and you can really fall away? No, but one of the ways that God causes His true children to persevere is by means of these warnings. So that those who truly belong to Christ are not casual to the warnings. They say, I I need to be growing in godliness. The fact of the matter is, some with a profession of faith, some who may even be well known in the covenant community, will stumble and fall. There's no mechanical sort of, I said a prayer, therefore I'm in And it doesn't matter how I live. If you are lacking in these qualities, if you've given up on them, you said, I don't care about these things in my life, then you should be afraid. Faith without works is dead. A habitual disinterest and disregard for godliness is a sign that you probably do not know God. So there's, there's someone who's, who's backslidden, and, and when somebody's backsliding, you warn them like they might be apostatizing. And the third category, the elect. You see in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Make sure God's sovereign choice. We are never told to pry into the recesses of God's mind. You know, well, am I elect? Did God really choose me? And I sort of got to get into God's head. And what did you do from eternity past? Did you pick me or not? I got to know. We're never told to do that. Likewise, we are never meant to presume upon the doctrine of election as if, well, you know, God's just going to take care of it. And that's that. doesn't matter how we live. No. The evidence of salvation And indeed, the evidence of election is quite simple. 
Fruit. Fruit. Good, elect trees bear good, spirit-filled fruit. Bad, reprobate trees bear bad, God-forsaken fruit. Let me hasten to add a couple things. One, keep in mind you're not the best judge of yourself. You could easily be led to despair. You need others to be a mirror for you. And second, something that C.S. Lewis was very wise to point out. So you have to realize people start in very different places. And he said, you may even have a believer and an unbeliever. And you may have an unbeliever who, because of their very strong family and upbringing and advantages that they had in life and sort of personality and disposition are sort of it, it, it's very easy for them to look relatively decent. You may have a believer truly born again who has none of those advantages, has all sorts of disadvantages, all sorts of obstacles and heritage to overcome. And yet, by God's grace, is overcoming, is growing. But yet you might look at them and say, well, I can't really tell much difference. Or, you know what, even this, this believer doesn't look all that impressive. But you have to remember where they started. That's why it's so key to remember increasing, increasing is what matters. That these are growing in you. We are meant to see fruit in our lives so that we can have assurance that we are truly God's elect. And let me point out that the qualities here are not mainly, not mainly about a bunch of things you have to do. I think we, we as evangelical Christians, we, we gravitate toward what we sort of, well, I got to look, am I bearing fruit? What, what's the first thing you think of? Quiet times. How am I doing? Am I praying? Am I reading the Bible? Those are really good things. That, that's not mainly what he's talking about. Or am I having family worship? Or am I having people over to my house once, once a month? Am I involved enough in the ministries of the church? This list here is about not so much what you do, though it spills over into that, but about who you are. And I just say that, maybe for my own sake as much as anyone, that you don't freak out and think, I don't have enough time to be godly. You ever feel that way? I'm supposed to be godly, and then I know that I'm elect? Well, I might not be elect because I don't even have time to do this. I don't have time to do these ministries and volunteer for this and, and do this with my kids and that and that. and be. I don't have time to bear fruit in my life. So to realize the fruit are your character. It's how you relate to people. Do you persevere? Are you kind? Do you love? Are you self-controlled in the way you handle your body? So be diligent to show the world and your own soul that you are on God's team. Someone said, just, hey, we've chosen you to be on the U.S. World Cup soccer team. He said, I, I haven't done anything. I know. That's a choice. We've chosen you to be on the team. Here you are. Have a jersey. You're on the team. Now, what do you do if you're really on the team? Well, don't just sit there and say, wow, oh, oh, this happened. You practice like crazy. 
you're not very good, but you start to get a little bit better and at least learn that, oh, I can't hold the ball in this sport. Okay, well, that's good. That's part of growth and godliness if you're a soccer player. And you learn some things and you work hard and you want to show, coach, coach, you chose me for this team and I am really a part of this team. See, I'm a soccer player. Well, you're not very good, but you are a soccer player. That's what you do with your election. Make it sure. Third, godliness provides an entrance into the eternal kingdom. The false teachers did not make their calling and election sure, and so they were not being provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom. If you look at chapter 2, verse 20, these teachers had some exposure to Christ. They were at one point seemingly part of the church. Verse 20, for after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse than their first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So here's people who did not make their calling and election sure. They knew the way of righteousness. They were somehow even on the path in a superficial way. And yet, look what Peter says at the beginning of chapter 2. False teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Verse 4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world. Verse 6, he uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of this culminating in the point that he will wreak justice upon the ungodly. They did not provide an entrance into the eternal kingdom. They did not show themselves to have been on the soccer team. We need to have something to show for ourselves. The book and the books talked about this before in Revelation. There's a Lamb's Book of Life. Your name is written in it. And then there are the books, which I think are, is a record of what we've done. And there must be at least some evidence in the books to corroborate that, yes, yes, truly, your name is in this book. John Piper said a great way of illustrating this at the conference a couple of weeks ago. He talked about the thief on the cross, even the thief on the cross who was saved in the, his dying breath. Name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and then the books were opened of his record. And his book was a pretty bad book. Had maybe just a little little three-by-five card. What do you have to show that this man was truly justified? But there was something on it. Feared God. Admitted his guilt. Lovingly rebuked the other criminal acknowledged Jesus' innocence, there was something on that card to say, yes, this is not a mistake. To enter heaven, we must in some way be fitted for it. (coughs) Those engaged in persistent, defiant, unrepentant wickedness will not be welcomed into heaven, no matter what they confess or what church they are part of. 
There's no escaping that teaching from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Galatians 5, Now the works of the flesh are evident. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation 21, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Unrepentant, habitual, defiant sinners are not in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know how many times in different circles when I've been arguing about homosexuality, people will say, Kevin, why, why, do you just, why are you just picking homosexuality? I mean, why don't you ever talk about all these other sins? Why do you just say that one sin? I always say, Come to my church. We talk about all the other sins too. Not just that sin. Any of these sins. Habitually, defiantly, unrepentantly, willfully. You ought not to have assurance. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. But those are the warnings. Here I want to finish with a little more hope. Because this is an exhortation to pursue godliness that we might expect a warm welcome in the kingdom that is to come. Richly provided for you an entrance, says verse 11. Several years ago, after uh, someone in our family, I think Trisha's grandfather, had passed away. And we were talking to someone who, not, not, not a believer, not part of a church, and said what seemed to me to be sarcastically, oh, he went home. I think it was supposed to be, you know, that, that's how you Christians talk. I said, yeah, he did. That's what we believe. It's not just a euphemism. There will be provided for you a rich welcome. That's what happens when you die in the Lord and you get to the other side, they roll out the red carpet. They drop the balloons. They strike up the band. You're home. Richly provided an entrance for you. Remember one time a number of years ago, flying back on a plane. I don't remember if I shared this story before. And uh, I got off. This was in the summer. And I flew into Grand Rapids, and there were just cameras and lights and media, and everybody was there. What What did I do? And I found out, I didn't really think it was for me, Floyd Mayweather Jr., this was after he won, I think, the bronze medal won the Olympics. He was on the same flight, boxer, was not next to him. I didn't poke him or anything. Probably up in first class all by himself or something. There was a welcome. Everybody out, all the lights. A rich welcome for him. You will have something so much better than that. But the way to be assured is your growth in godliness. J.C. Ryle again says, I know not what others may think, but to me it does, not, it does seem clear that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy person. It cannot be otherwise. People may say in a vague way they hope to go to heaven, but they do not consider what they say. 
There must be a certain meetness for the inheritance of the saints in light. Our hearts must be somewhat in tune to reach the holiday of glory. We must pass through the training school of grace. We must be heavenly minded and have heavenly tastes in the life that now is, or else we shall never find ourselves in heaven in the life to come. Why would you want heaven if heaven is not but holiness and you have no interest in holiness now? There is no reason that we should not be motivated to strive with all our effort and all our might for godliness. You think, do I want to be an effective and fruitful Christian? Peter says, then you need to be godly. Do I want to have assurance of my election and my calling? Peter says, you need to be godly. Do I want to be confident of a warm, rich welcome when I get to the other side? Peter says, you need to be godly. Be diligent. Make every effort. Christ has given us the grace we need for life and godliness. Where has your godliness gotten flabby? Where's your spiritual life gotten those underarms? Gotten a lot of loose skin? Gotten a little pudgy? Where have you gotten lazy? With your eyes? With the television set? With your mind? With your hands, how about with your tongue? Wherever you need a little exercise, God calls us to make every effort. And he would remind you that godliness is not just for God's glory. It is also for your good. This is for your good. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to work hard. I think, I think most everyone here is a pretty hard worker. We, we have to, to take care of our families and to do well at our jobs. We work hard. Lord, may it be also said of us that we are working hard at godliness. Work in us, even as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand once more as we close. <clears throat> Oh, mm-hmm.
Build the devil curse for my soul. 